Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we're putting a new spin on classic Thanksgiving desserts with pie experts Chris Taylor and Paul Argwin. They talk about Franken-Pie, one part cheesecake and three parts every other holiday pie, and how to upgrade pumpkin pie from pedestrian to amazing. What we like to do is take a little uh, canned dulce de leche, and we'll spread about a cup of that over the top, and then right before serving, we sprinkle it with some crushed uh, toffee bits, and that really crowns a pumpkin pie very nicely. Also coming up, we'll hear from regular contributors Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, and Dan Pashman helps us make the most out of a virtual Thanksgiving. But first, Andrea Nguyen shares her family traditions, which are inspired by the Vietnamese Moon Festival. Andrea, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Um, I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about Thanksgiving because you have one foot in the cooking of your mother and now your own cooking from Vietnam, and you also have a well-grounded foot here in Southern California with what you found for Thanksgiving when you got here back in the 70s. First of all, could you just describe a little bit what that was like after being uh, in a very different kind of place originally? Sure. You know, our first Thanksgiving in America was extremely unusual. It was so exotic. We had arrived in Southern California in May and um, even though, you know, it's springtime and everything, to us it was freezing because we came from <laughs> South Vietnam where it's either hot or hotter. But, you know, nonetheless, we went to the supermarkets and we saw things like turkeys and sweet potatoes, you know, and marshmallows. We didn't know what marshmallows were. And turkeys were so strange. We had heard about them, you know, and the French had prepared them. But it's just such a huge bird. And yes, it is. Know, the, the size of a toddler. And um, <laughs> even though my mom was used to dispatching, you know, pigs and, and even small birds, a, a large turkey was really not her thing. And it was really unusual. And all that bread stuffing, too, we were really used to stuffing birds for roasting with sticky rice. Right. So it was all really new to us, but it was also an adventure. So, you know, most every culture has a harvest celebration, and Thanksgiving is sort of that in its own way. Could you describe what a harvest celebration might be like in Vietnam, assuming they still have them? Oh, well, we definitely have harvest celebrations um, because it's the moon festival when the moon is the biggest and brightest of the entire year. And everyone goes out to take a look at the moon. We eat moon cakes. We return home for family reunions. Kids walk around the neighborhood with lanterns. But, um, you know, it's a time for remembrance and for feeling grateful for what you have. So is there a set menu that's sort of part of a culinary celebration for the harvest, for the moon 
you know what, it just boils down to the mooncakes. And my mom has this crazy story of how she and her girlfriends got together to take a lesson from a woman in Vietnam who charged a ton of money for these, for a class. It was like a three-day mooncake class. And um, she and her girlfriends were so appalled by the price that this woman charged that they pulled their money together and sent one of their friends to take the class. And then the other friends who didn't take the class gathered around by like the gate of the building where she was teaching the class. And on breaks, they would take notes. They would like her, their friend would come out and take notes. And <laughs> so all of the girlfriends learned how to make mooncakes, but they only had to fund like one person to go. And after that <laughs> class happened, they gathered 50 women in one of their homes and taught them all how to make mooncakes. I love that. That's great. Right? That is <laughs> fabulous. That's something you would do, Andrea. I would. I would. You know, it's like revenge of the people. Um, but, I, you know, and so and so my mom brought that recipe with her to the United States. And it is like a multi-day labor of love. And um, we pack ours with nuts and a mincemeat kind of filling. And in the center, there's a salted egg yolk. And the, the pastry outside is only about an eighth of an inch thick. Hmm. And it's molded in a, a special wooden mold. Okay, so so for you now, Thanksgiving, is is it a, a sort of a ragtag mix of different cultures? What have you settled on as being sort of your classic Thanksgiving menu? Oh, there is no classic in my in my family. We we try, you know, to get together at my parents' house and my mom and I come up with with a uh, menu that, you know, recognizes the favorite Vietnamese foods that we like to to eat, for example. I'll definitely make sure that um, we make jazza, um, fried rice paper rolls. And then, you know, maybe I'll make different kinds of salads that reflect the the holidays like there's I like to make this red cabbage salad that's very festive and of the season and then the sweet potatoes and then you know I actually will roast for my parents chickens and I'll have my mom make her sticky rice stuffing so could you I stop you for a second so what's the fundamental recipe for sticky rice stuffing what's in it um there's dry shiitake and also sticky rice, which you soak first, and then you steam off. off. And then we saute a little onion and butter and add add the shiitake. There's um, also the liver from the bird gets chopped up in there. There's a little pork, a little cilantro, liquor, uh, cognac, even though my mom says she doesn't know how to drink, she likes to have the liquor in there. (laughs) A little thyme, actually, a little dry thyme. Um, Any of the classic quote unquote, American Thanksgiving dishes, you know, pies, breads that has remained in your repertoire or not? Um, Seeing Thanksgiving through a different lens, I think that I don't necessarily filter it through a particularly cozy menu. You know, my mom doesn't like pies and none of that jello stuff has ever come into my family's life on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Um, my sister has like brought over Thanksgiving leftovers sometimes the day after, which my mom like absolutely abhors. You know, one year she brought over like half-eaten pies or something, and my mom was so insulted. She said, "This is not what you gift people. You give people whole gifts, not partial gifts." And I think that's where her hate of pies kind of 
got seated. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, you obviously have a very close relationship with your mother and, and the two of you share many characteristics as far as I can tell. I know you a little bit. Um, there's something really charming about her insistence on the right way of doing things. Is, is that a fair comment? Yes, it definitely is. Um, you know, she she's loosened up over time. You know, she is, after all, 86. And from what I've learned in terms of my adult relationship with my mom and my dad is that there's flexibility, but you do need to have that grounding. You know, Chris, you and I have talked about that idea of kale right. um, in past conversations, this this notion of having a foundation in the roots of your heritage, in the roots of a technique, understanding how ideas evolved, and then you can start riffing. And then you kind of start appreciating the craftsmanship that, that goes with putting good food on the table and making good food and being creative. And so... That kind of strictness is important because you need discipline. And Lord knows when I was little, my mom instilled so much discipline in me that I oftentimes fought it. But now I am <laughs> subscribed to the resistance is futile mode uh, <laughs> of understanding her. <laughs> so this year, gratitude, and I think this year in particular, gratitude from all of our families and hearts and Thanksgiving is certainly a good time to sit down and think about that a little bit. Andrea, thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you so much, Chris, for including me. That was Andrea Nguyen. She's a chef, teacher, food writer, and cookbook author specializing in Vietnamese food. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be solving your holiday mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Okay, Chris, I've got a question before we take any calls. What is the one thing at the Thanksgiving meal that you just cannot do without? Oh, I don't care about anything but the pies. You have a sweet tooth. The turkey, the gravy, and the mashed potatoes. I don't want to eat any other vegetables. Please don't serve me something green. I do not want a salad. (laughs) I want a cocktail. I want turkey, gravy, mashed potatoes, and then I want pies, and I'll have a slice of every pie. But it's really about pies because it's the only time of year that I would make more than one dessert, right? I mean, you think about it, you'd have one dessert maybe at a gathering. But this is where I get like four desserts. I get three pies and a trifle maybe. So it's dessert. Okay, you know, I, I see. That's how quite clear. Do. All right. Well, see? thank you. Now let's yeah. let's move on to some uh, calls. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Diane from Vermont. Where in Vermont? Let's start with that. Near the capital of Montpelier. Montpelier is really a wonderful town. We love Montpelier. Well, now we have all that in common. <laughs> how can I help you? So my question is: I host Thanksgiving, so I've got all the food prep pretty well down to a science, but because Thanksgiving dinner is such a long, drawn-out meal, I don't know what to serve for wines, plural, because it's a long meal. So I usually end up just serving champagne because I don't know what else would go well. You're serving turkey, not Chinese food or a beef roast or something. Yeah. (laughs) Turkey, stuffing, gravy, usually Brussels sprouts. We like squash. We like turnip. There are two possibilities. You can do what I do, 
which is to get a fairly acidic, light white, because you're going to be drinking a fair amount of wine and you have a lot of heavy food, I would serve a Gruner Veltliner. It's Austrian wine, a Sancerre, or something like that. It's very minerally refreshing. So I would stay away from a big red, for example. And also serve it at the proper temperature. You know, most reds and whites should be served at about the same temperature in the 50s. Sarah, you um, obviously have an opinion about this. Well, I mean, the real problem with the Thanksgiving meal is it's all over the place. I think one thing that's common about a Thanksgiving meal is it's pretty darn heavy and pretty fat laden. I actually applaud your choice of champagne. But obviously, uh, champagne all the way through the meal might be a bit much. You know, I agree with Chris about not something too heavy, but maybe something a little fruitier uh, and lighter. I agree with that, too. But like a Beaujolais, I tend to like red Riojas because they're very food-friendly. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not against a Gruner Veltliner either. I think that's a nice idea. Another good guide, I think, get a Sicilian wine. I find those are not expensive, well under $20. They tend to be pretty light. They're not heavy wines. They have reds and whites. So if you wanted a red, for example, Mm -hmm. there's lots of really great wines from that region. Yes, I agree. That are lighter. If you want a light red, that would be my Another one. You know, I just had another thought, which is sparkling cider. I just, I guess I must have somehow intuitively picked up on the fact that carbonation you know, it's not a bad choice for a heavy meal. like Yeah, definitely. If you have three or four glasses of champagne, though, I don't know about you. <laughs> champagne, I can't do more than one glass. It just goes to my head. goes so right I, to your head, yeah. I don't think it's a good long-term sobriety concept. No, but concept. You, you start with it, you know. Yeah, I think as a small glass to start, it's an excellent idea. Yes, yeah. Totally agree. For the toast. You yes, know. absolutely. Yes. Anyway. Good for you. Yeah. Diana, thank you. Yeah, good question. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Deb from Western Massachusetts. How can we help you? Well, um, although it may look different this year, Thanksgiving is really my favorite holiday because I love to have people at my table. And I generally purchase, you know, a locally raised 15 or 16 pound turkey. And when I've brined it, the meat's excellent, but the juices from which I make the gravy right. are too salty. Yep. So, you know, I usually make a stock from the neck and giblets, and I use that when I make the gravy, but even that can't offset the saltiness. So, advice, please. I used to be a huge proponent of brining. I used to do it all the time. I used to get this big tub. I put it down in the root cellar the night before, blah, blah, blah. I haven't brined my turkey in years. What I do mm-hmm. is I spatchcock it. I take the spine out, backbone out. You know, 15-pound turkey is not the easiest thing in the world, but if you get really heavy-duty poultry (laughs) shears, it's fine. Don't do it with a knife. Either I roast it that way, flattened, or what I love to do is cook the legs submerged in water and leeks and herbs and onions, and then I put the entire breast, both sides, still on the bone, on top, and then I roast it Mm -hmm. or braise it, I guess you'd say. And then when the white meat is done, I take it off, and then I can continue cooking the dark meat. The benefit of this is you get the world's best gravy. It's phenomenal. That's how I do it. Sarah? I do like the quote-unquote dry brining, but how do you get around the salty gravy? So here's what you do. You take all the parts you just mentioned that you take, uh, so the neck that you get in there, the giblets, but not the liver. And then I also cut off the wings 
what I would do is roast all of those a day ahead or a couple days ahead, cut up the neck if you can, or just use a, a large chef's knife and cut it into several pieces so that you can either roast the bones in the oven or brown them in a skillet and then deglaze the pan with a little wine, maybe some shallots. You want the cheater's method? Three pounds of chicken wings in an oh, instant Oh, chicken pot wings are fantastic. With water yes. to cover for 40 minutes under pressure, you're done. It makes the world's best chicken stock. Reduce that down on top of the stove by half or so, and then take some of the drippings, about three tablespoons with some flour, make a roux and whisk that into the stock, and you're done. I think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, have a lovely Thanksgiving. All the best yes, Deborah. Thank you, and the yeah. same to you, and thank you very much for all this great advice. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring anytime. That number is 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three. One more time, eight five five four two six nine eight four three, or just email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Jesse. I'm calling from Toronto, Ohio. How can we help you? All right. As most of your listeners, I have been stuck in my kitchen for most of 2020, and I had made the decision to cook my way through my great grandmother's cookbook. I have gotten into a bit of a sticky situation. I have tried to recreate her strawberry rhubarb custard pie. Mm. And when I made it, the crust stuck clean to the bottom. So I know that you are a bit of a pie guru, Chris. Can you help me? Sure. A custard pie, I would, um, he said confidently, a custard pie should have a pre-baked crust. Are you pre-baking it? No, and it, and in directions she has handwritten, do not bake crust. Okay, we'll go down two roads. The first is if you don't pre-bake it, use a Pyrex pie plate and okay. line it and then put it on the bottom rack of the oven. And you have a pretty good chance of getting that bottom crust pretty well baked, even with a custard pie. Don't use a tin pan, use a Pyrex pan. That's the no-bake solution. If you do want to pre-bake it, Line the pan, put it in the fridge for 20 minutes, put it in the freezer another 20 minutes, and then blind bake it at like 375 with uh, weights and foil. One trick is don't take the foil out until the crust is dry. If it's still sticky, leave the foil on it 20 minutes, a little more, and then take the foil out and then finish baking a few minutes to just lightly brown and let it cool a little bit. Is the custard... It's not cooked on top of the stove at all before it's put into the pies, no. it, just in a bowl, right? Yeah. You can leave the crust actually pretty hot when you fill it okay. and then put it into the oven. Sarah? Well, I mean, this is rare, but I completely agree with everything that Chris said. Woo! I know. Dear diary. <laughs> that all makes sense to me. And I know, you know, you're probably feeling like it's terrible to change the recipe because it's your great-grandmother's. Yeah, I've been working my way completely through her handwritten cookbook over the last six months. That is so great that she did that. Are most of the recipes terrific? Yeah, except for the aspics. <laughs> oh, uh, my goodness. We're not oh, a big fan of the aspics. And I also found a horseradish apricot sandwich spread, which hmm. would have been very interesting. It's so interesting you mentioned aspics. Because aspics used to be a thing. They were huge. And nobody ever makes an aspic anymore. But you know what, Jessica, if you had the energy, you might want to 
update the recipes and publish it, I mean, for the family at least. This has taken me all over Pennsylvania in the last six months, meeting people in a lot of different aspects. It's been really interesting. That's great. In the cookbooks, I found a diary. She ends up at the Lincoln Memorial, unveiling of the Lincoln Memorial. Wow. And she says it's the most splendid piece of architecture that she's ever seen, and it's in 1921. So it's been fun. That's cool. I just also wanted to say, guys, I've been listening to the two of you for over 20 years. You have influenced my home cooking in ways you will never imagine. So thank you for teaching all of us. It was wonderful to talk to you two today. I just wish my kids listened to me. (laughs) Jessica, you made my day. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kay Jeffrey. Hello, Kay. Where are you calling from? Nacogdoches, Texas. How can we help you today? I have this cranberry sauce recipe that is my grandmother's. When I started having granddaughters, I thought it was time to parcel out the Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner and have them learn pieces of it. So one learned pumpkin pie, one learned pecan pie, and one learned cranberry sauce. Well, the cranberry sauce granddaughter has never had a success. It's a jellied cranberry sauce. And we've never had trouble, and I wondered if the cranberries are different now than they used to be, or is it something that we're doing that's making the sauce not gel anymore? Tell me what goes into the sauce and how you do it. Four cups of berries, two cups of water, two cups of sugar, and that's all. And how do you make it? Well, we boil the berries in water until they pop. And then we run them through a colander, and then we add sugar to the juice and cook for five minutes, add just a tiny bit of butter so that it doesn't foam, and that's it. You always cook them first in water? Why not water and sugar? I don't know. It's just what the recipe has told us to do. Hmm. Well, what's interesting about cranberries... They just have a ton of natural pectin. But how long did you say you boil them till they pop? How long does that take? I don't know how long that takes. Not very long, yeah. Not very long, Okay. Well, it's my understanding that really for the pectin to do its thing, they need to be simmered with both the sugar and the water. Okay. The longer you simmer them, the more pectin you develop. So about a 20-minute simmer is a good idea. But let's hear what Chris has to say. Use the recipe on the back of the ocean spray bag. (laughs) I've used that for years. The only difference is I add a quarter teaspoon of salt to it. I think there's probably less water in it than what you have here. And you cook it for 15 to 20 minutes, as Sarah said, and you get a great sauce. If you wanted at that point to strain it or whatever, that's fine. But that'll get you exactly the right texture Am I using too much water, you say? I think you I might think be. so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. How much water, if you measure cups? I think it's probably a cup or so. I mean, you have to look on the back of the bag. I think the problem with water is you're not going to get it over 212 degrees, right? The boiling point of water. So you're not getting the berries and the sugar up to a high temperature. So having less water, the water eventually boils off, and then the mixture starts to get hotter You need that extra heat to uh, get the gel to set properly. Okay. Just try that. It works. 
All right. All right. And you know what? Would you please let us know, Kay, if it works? Sure. We'd like to hear back. All right. Sure will. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kay. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin to get their take on Thanksgiving pies. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are. And I think 
that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with pie experts Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin. Chris and Paul, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Uh, before we get into your your crazy but absolutely fabulous pies for Thanksgiving, can we just talk about some basic technique here? So what's your basic approach to a recipe for pie dough? So um, our standard pie dough, uh, we like to use a, a, it's a mostly butter crust. Um, the, the other part of the fat that we like to use is usually vegetable shortening. Uh, we also like um, leaf lard. So we uh, mix the shortening or the leaf lard in with the flour, first of all. Has a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of baking powder. Add the cold butter chunks and then add a precisely measured amount of water to to match the other precisely measured ingredients. We measure all of our ingredients by weight, of course. And let that dough, uh, once it's all come together, let it rest in the fridge for several hours, preferably even overnight so that it's ready to use. Um, Blind baking, you know, that's one of the things that people, it's a horror show, right? Because pumpkin pies and custard pies like that have to be blind baked. Do you have any tips and techniques about that? Yeah. um, So absolutely for a custard pie like pumpkin or sweet potato, um, the crust should always be blind baked. Otherwise, the bottom is going to be soft. It's going to be unappealing. And so what we'd recommend is you line your pie shell with uh, your dough, and then we chill it. We like to throw it actually in the freezer for about a half hour while the oven preheats. And then we line that cold crust with a piece of aluminum foil, and we fill the pan with about four cups of ceramic pie weights. Oh, that's and a lot. Okay. It's a lot, um, but we find you really need that weight, not only on the bottom, a lot of people think that you just need it along the bottom, but you really need that weight to support the sides to prevent slumping. And when you use the right amount of weights, what's nice is you get almost no slumping and no oh. shrinkage at all. Okay, you guys are super advanced here. Okay, so so pumpkin pie, I like it. Some people can't stand it. You guys have a different take. Absolutely. Um, what we like to do, and you can do this with a homemade pumpkin pie or even a store-bought pumpkin pie, is take a little uh, canned dulce de leche, which is a cream caramel made from sweetened condensed milk. We warm it up just a little bit to make it sort of spreadable like a soft peanut butter. And we'll Mm. spread about a cup of that over the top of Mm. a pumpkin pie. And then right before serving, we sprinkle it with some crushed uh, toffee bits. And that really crowns a pumpkin pie very nicely. It's a little bit of a dark sweetness, and then it adds a little bit of texture, which uh, it goes over really well with uh, with our friends when we serve it. Kind of sneaky. I mean, you're, even if you don't <laughs> like pumpkin, by the time you get to the pumpkin, you don't care anymore. Um, you guys also uh, <laughs> thought about what if you put all, all the holiday classics into one pie? 
Um, so how do you make an all-in-one Thanksgiving pie? Yeah, that's our, our all-in-one Thanksgiving pie is sort of what we call a Franken-pie. And so it's in a, uh, it's a pastry crust, but then we have a bottom that's sort of an, it's an apple cheesecake. We have a ribbon of cranberry sauce, and it's topped with a pumpkin custard. Um, and so it, the, the flavors really go well together, and it's a nice uh, custard pie that you serve cold. And then we have a recipe for a warm, we call it pecan pie gravy that you pour over it. Um, it's, it's, it's really just a taste of everything, but it's also, you know, we joke that it's a great way to make everybody happy when you can't always make everybody happy at the holidays. Or you can get, go through all four pies at once. That's right. Yeah. But it it does sound, I have to admit the uh, pecan gravy does sound great. Okay. So now we've gone through the usual suspects, of course, with your own, the Chris and Paul twist on them. Um, but you also suggested a pie for people who want something not traditional, which is happening more and more, what would you pick for that pie? Well, our thought is actually something that you can usually find in most supermarkets. Uh, certainly uh, here in Atlanta, we see it year round, is fresh pineapple. They, they fly it in from all over the world all the time. And so we have a Tahitian pineapple pie that uh, will mix it up for the holidays. It's the flavors really of a pineapple upside down cake. So the brown sugar, the, the caramelly notes in, in the roasted pineapple, along with some uh, Tahitian vanilla. So it's a stovetop cooked filling put into a partially blind baked crust. And then we put a crunchy topping made with panko. Um, it crisps up in the oven. So you get perfectly cooked uh, pineapple with a nice crunchy vanilla brown mm. sugary top. Uh, okay, so Thanksgiving, it's baking panic, right? Because most people don't bake that much, maybe more so this year. Um, but you guys probably don't panic about baking. So are there some rules or some advice you could give people to make the process less fearful and more orderly? Oh, no question. Um, I think it's so important when, if you're going to be hosting in particular, or if you're bringing some items to someone's house, just spend a little time thinking about the logistics of what you have to accomplish. And I start, I figure out when is this pie going to be eaten, depending on when Thanksgiving dinner is being served. And I start working backwards because I'd like my pie to be at its best uh, when it's actually going to be eaten. And so then I'll start thinking about uh, when it needs to be uh, baked, when I would need to start preparing things such as my pie dough so that it's ready to roll out. And I, and I put it on a, on a little calendar and I figure out backwards when I need to start and how I can prepare. And so as much as you can think about um, like when you'll have access to the oven, if you're baking at someone else's house, what temperature is the oven going to be at, think through all those logistics. And again, you can make it low stress and you can enjoy the holiday and spend time with your friends and family, which is the whole point of why you're doing it. Oh, is that why? I forgot. <laughs> I thought it was for the pies. Oh, too, I see. Yes. It's for the family. Okay, okay. Uh, Chris and Paul, thank you so much. You've changed my plans for Thanksgiving. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. That was Chris Taylor and Paul Argwin, authors of The New Pie, Modern Techniques for the Classic American Dessert. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, how are you doing? We're doing great. Fantastic. What do you have for me this week? Yeah, we're talking about planning a holiday meal for Thanksgiving. Uh, My wife and I are going to have folks in the backyard. What about you, Grant? Well, we're thinking about having Thanksgiving with everyone who is in our pandemic bubble. And so I've been 
thinking about what my house is going to look like. What am I going to do <laughs> to prepare this shabby little wreck I call home? Yes, I remember that feeling, that that frantic last-minute cleaning, you know, when company's coming right. and you finally see all this stuff that you haven't noticed before, all the cobwebs. Right, your and eyes glaze over it. Right? Chris, is it like that for you? No, no, here's how it works. The, the dining room will be set, right? It would look nice in the living room. And then... The rest of the house is a complete train wreck. Right. Because the kids have their toys. And so people walk yeah. in and the first thing they see is a complete disaster. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're on the same page. Yes. Yeah. So you have that adrenaline rush and you start engaging in uh, what's variously called shame cleaning. Uh, we've had a listener yeah. call in and say she calls it making a lasagna. <laughs> layers upon layers of stuff that you'll worry about yeah. later. Yeah, some folks call it a scoop and shove. Well, sometimes you just yeah. throw everything in a closet and you make what's called the comedy closet. Our older listeners will remember Fibber McGee. There was this running gag where somebody would make the mistake of opening the hall closet instead of the front door. And there would be this long, drawn-out explosion of noises, usually ending <laughs> with the sound of like a, a glass marble bouncing. And then Fibber McGee would say... I got to get that closet cleaned out one of these days and everybody would crack up. So even now, uh, you will still hear older folks sometimes talking about the Fibber McGee closet. You know, this is reminding me that I, I have Fibber McGee drawers that <laughs> that I still haven't cleaned out from the previous vacations. <laughs> I have a theory about everyone's allowed to have a junk drawer. Yep. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Where you're just allowed to put anything you want in that drawer and the great thing about that drawer is it has everything you want. Yeah. So anytime I've lost something, it inevitably is in that drawer, <laughs> even though it's a mess. Another name for that junk drawer sometimes is the Kulch drawer. That's C-U-L-C-H. And Martha, that has a very interesting etymology, doesn't it? Yeah, it goes all the way back to the 1600s in the UK, and uh, it's particular to uh, northeastern United States, uh, New England. And uh, do you use that, Chris? I've never ever heard no. that term. No. Well, the folks who might be involved with shellfish and that sort of thing might know it because it's still in use in that field. This is the pile of old shells and gravel and rocks and brick that are piled in the water for the larval oysters to latch onto. And so, by extension, it's any pile of junk or rubbish, sometimes called cutch, C-U-T-C-H, or scutch, S-C-U-T-C-H. The scutch drawer. That's so much better than the junk drawer. (laughs) I got to use that. That's good. Thank you. But, okay, so once you get the house cleaned up, you're also thinking about how am I going to entertain these people until dinner is done? What do you do next? Mm -hmm. You you get them drunk. (laughs) Well, you do. And you also have to think about avoiding those difficult conversations because this is a very contentious political year, right? So how do you do that? Well, this brings up one of our favorite words, which is dipnosophy, D-E-I-P-N-O-S-O-P-H-Y, dipnosophy, which has to do with the art of dinner table conversation. Hmm. And there were all kinds of things written about this uh, in antiquity. But, of course, when you're sitting there at the Thanksgiving table with your opinionated relatives, you have to know how to manage that. And one thing that you can do is to have a weird non sequitur, something that doesn't really follow. And one of my favorites is, so do you think the rain will hurt the rhubarb? (laughs) And everybody's supposed to respond, not if it's in cans. And it's sort of just, I know, it's silly, but it's sort of a reminder, everybody take a deep breath. You know, I guess you could say, how about those socks or something like that. 
All right, so you made it through the meal. The conversation was good or bad, and now the host is trying to get some more food in your belly, and you're trying to politely turn it away, and there's this one particular expression that there are, what, dozens of different versions of, Martha? Lots. Out there that's been running around the United States for about 200 years, and this is what you say at the end of the meal when they're offering you more and you just can't fit in another bite. You just sort of wave your hand like you don't want any more, and you say... I am sufficiently saffonsified. <laughs> and Grant, I would say every month or so, somebody writes yeah. us or calls yep. us and says, my granddad used to say I'm sufficiently saffonsified, or some version of that. There's saffonsified, saffonsified, saffonsified. Fairansified, saffonsified, saffonified. And what does, that, what does that mean, the word? It's just a fancy way of talking. That's it. Huh? There's uh, another version is my sufficiency is fully serancified. Any more would be obnoxious to my fastidious <laughs> taste. <laughs> no, I, I love my sufficiency though. That's yes. my sufficiency is saffonsified. That's perfect. I have had a genteel sufficiency. Any more would be a superfluity. <laughs> Ooh, that's good too. That that sounds like Big Daddy from Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, I was kind of going yeah. for the, like the yeah. Southern gentleman as best I can manage it. <laughs> yeah. All right, now it's time for the nap. Yeah. Because your your <laughs> the carbs have gone to your head. You got to work in your power nap. Yeah. You got to squeeze in some shut eye before it's time to drive home. Right. Or the cat nap, or the disco nap. Chris, have you ever heard of a disco nap? <laughs> a disco nap? Me? No. <laughs> I never heard well, of it. Well, a disco nap is what you do to build up some energy to go on to the next event. So if you have two Thanksgivings in a row, you need a disco nap in between. Yeah, back in my days as a health writer for magazines, I interviewed one of the world's top sleep experts who said the way to do a disco nap is to drink a cup of coffee and take your nap because it takes about 20 minutes for that to kick in and you will be turbocharged huh. when you wake up. Does that work? Is that true? I can vouch for that. I don't know about going to discos, but but it's it's <laughs> it's helped me with my Fibber McGee cleaning. <laughs> Since I don't really tend to go out and party too much, I'm not sure that's helpful. But if I have to clean the dishes after Thanksgiving, it would be extremely helpful. <laughs> Grand Martha, thank you. I think now I have a uh, sufficiency of ways of dealing with the holidays. Thanks. Glad to be here, Chris. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Chris. We are saffonsified as well. <laughs> That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman helps us make the most out of a virtual Thanksgiving. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Chris. You too. I, I hate to ask, but how are you celebrating Thanksgiving this year? <laughs> I, I never know what you'll come up with. Well, I stopped celebrating it on my podcast. You were uh, you were part of our last Thanksgiving special ever a couple years ago. Um, I'm, on a personal front, I'm celebrating it mostly on Zoom, uh, which is strange. But, you know, I have to say I think it has its charms. We actually celebrated the Jewish holiday of Passover back in April over Zoom. And I learned from that experience that, like, well, first of all, one great thing about holidays on Zoom, you can invite as many people as you want. You don't have to cook for all of them. That's such a warm sentiment at this time of year, Dan. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's more like well, we did Passover. We had like 32 people in seven states. Some of them hadn't celebrated oh. Passover together in decades. Some of them had never celebrated it. So, you know, like there's those people who like, oh, it would be nice to reach out to so-and-so. Or, oh, it's somebody's distant cousin who doesn't have anywhere to go for the holiday. And if you're already cooking for 16 or 18 or 20 people, sometimes it can feel stressful to add another four or six. But when it's on Zoom... You get to invite everyone. You can be more inclusive, Chris. No, that, that's actually that's actually a good point. That's true. Except some of us actually like cooking for large numbers of people, but we're not going to be doing that this year, I guess, anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, cooking for 10 or 12, I like. When you start getting past 20, it's a lot. Yeah, um, that's true. But here's the other nice thing about the Zoom holiday, Chris. When your family gets annoying, you can mute them. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Many times in life, a mute button would be really helpful. Exactly. Yeah. So so what are you going to cook for Thanksgiving? Well, so here's another good thing. So so I, I'm going to cook a turkey, obviously, but I'm going to cook a smaller turkey. Because in the past, when I have to make a turkey for 20 people, I have to make a gigantic turkey. It takes forever right. to cook it. And I've been wanting to cook a turkey more like braise it slow and low for a long period of right. time get the meat to fall off the bone. But, you know, when you have a 25-pound turkey, you'd have to start cooking it at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
now I'm cooking like a 10 or 12 pound turkey. I'm going to be able to braise it, a lot of liquid, seal it in foil for a while, just get that meat falling off the bone. In other words, you're cooking a large chicken. Um, I think the turkey would beg to differ, but uh, sure. (laughs) Well, okay, so you'll have a Zoom Thanksgiving. Uh, You'll cook a smaller turkey. Does this mean you'll cook fewer dishes too, or just not as much quantity? I mean, I'm really a purist. I I want turkey stuffing mashed potatoes. That's what I want on my Thanksgiving plate. And sure, some sweet potatoes, some Brussels sprouts, but that's more for leftovers when I feel bad about how much I ate for Thanksgiving. I can be like, oh, look, vegetables. Um, And so, yeah, so I'd probably keep it pretty simple. I will say, like, one of the sort of bittersweet things about the Zoom Thanksgiving is, like, you know, you may have that person in your family who cooks this certain dish that— is the thing you look forward to that you, right. it's a big part of the holiday for you. And if you can't be with that person, that's obviously disappointing. And, you know, they can send you the recipe, but it's probably not going to be the same. Um, you know, the flip side is if that relative shows up with the same dish every year and stands over you while you taste it, expecting you to tell them how good it is and you actually don't like it, you don't have to lie anymore. Well, you could just have your relatives show up, drop off their food, and leave. <laughs> 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 so, Dan, uh, this year uh, at Thanksgiving, I hope you include me on your uh, your Zoom holiday feast. Sure. I, I'm, I, I'll invite all your listeners. Anyone can be there. Or I'll, I'll, ju- I'll just drop off a pie and leave. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Bashman, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Enjoy your Zoom connection. I hope it uh, works well. My pleasure, Chris. Happy Thanksgiving. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. This is Milk Street Radio. For this special episode, we've invited our listeners and friends to share their favorite Thanksgiving memories. Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Zimmern. My favorite memories of Thanksgiving are standing by my father while he carved the birds. We always had more than one. And he would hand me little bits of crispy skin or the Pope's nose, the turkey tail, all crispy and delicious. Hi, it's Lokalani, Alabanza. When I was a little girl, I would always crawl under the table and I loved watching the adults walk up and then they would leave with their plates and I would crawl back out and peek up and spy pie and ham and turkey and mac and cheese and greens and it was always just so marvelous. This is Dr. Howard Kanyans from Kanyans Family Barbecue. Almost every Thanksgiving growing up in South Carolina was Some of us would be cooking barbecue hogs and turkeys for the family, but then some of my other family members would be deer hunting. And um, the family always made time to take a break around 3 o'clock to come to the house and eat. This is Sam Sifton. Crowding around a makeshift table in the cold of my yard, shoulder to shoulder with friends and relatives, shucking oysters in advance of a turkey dinner where we were so tightly packed that it was hard to get up from the table to get back to the kitchen for seconds. Hey, it's Joe Yonan, the food editor at the Washington Post. You know what? I'd give just about anything to whipped cream for Thanksgiving pies with my mom once again. Hi, I'm Sonoko Sakai. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Kim Severson with the New York Times. I'm Claire Saffitz. Hey, everybody. This is Rachel Ray. Happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble. I am thankful to have learned a few lessons about Thanksgiving, like uh, staying in your own lane. One year we tried to switch roles. The house got um, kind of an unusual odor going on in it. My sister had forgotten to take the plastic bag and all of the 
innards in the neck out of the cavity of the purse and was roasting it with all of that. Just when I thought my stock was perfect and went back to check on it, I found out that she had filled the pot back up to the top with water. It was a real heartbreak, and obviously I still haven't gotten over it. I was five years old and my sister Jane turned down the oven knob to 100 degrees Fahrenheit while the turkey was roasting. The turkey fell onto the floor and slid for about two feet. And I realized how important it is to just be calm and not panic. This is Nikki and Carol from Ennaka. And one of my favorite memories from Thanksgiving actually happened not so long ago when we decided to be really extravagant and bring Wagyu ribeye into the mix of the foods that we were serving. What happened, Carol? <laughs> so I got a little bit distracted, entertaining, pouring some champagne for guests and drinking along with everybody. And then suddenly when I looked at the oven, the Wagyu roast was on fire. <laughs> it was still delicious, though, I must say. It was the best thing I ever had. Hey, guys. Manit Chauhan here, wishing all of you a very, very happy Thanksgiving. My name is Javier Cabral. I am the editor of LA Taco and the social producer of the Taco Chronicles on Netflix. Hey, there. This is Tyler Malik from Salt and Straw Ice Cream. Hi, I'm Mauchi. I'm doing Korean cooking on YouTube. On the special occasions like Thanksgiving Day, I want to follow American tradition. So I roasted turkey. So delicious. But I never forget to serve with my homemade kimchi because this turkey goes well with kimchi as a side. My mom makes the absolute the most delicious turkey. Um, I guess you can call that a Mexican-American style turkey. And it is made with a red chile paste made from dried chiles, and then as, as the turkey cooks, the juices form a red chile sauce. I can smell the delicious tandoori turkey being roasted in the oven. My favorite memory from Thanksgiving was my grandmother's oyster casserole with crumbled saltines. I have no idea what lengths she had to go through to find oysters in the middle of nowhere, Montana, but thinking of that dish always makes me very, very happy. Hi, this is David Leibovitz in Paris, and every year, like most Americans, I used to run around trying to get a whole turkey, cranberries, sweet potatoes, and so forth to make a Thanksgiving dinner. And then I realized that the French people I know only like stuffing. They're not interested in a big bird delivered at the table or even pumpkin pie. So now I just make the stuffing and forget about trying to find all the other stuff and enjoy the holiday with good red wine. French, of course. Thanksgiving is to see your friends and family, and you share foods that we all make together. I live in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, and I'm Nora Hay. Hey everybody, this is Tom Papa wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. More important than how many recipes and been working so hard, the whole thing could be wasted if the guest list stinks. It's Mara from Woodsall. I love Thanksgiving. But sometimes we're so focused on the other things that we don't do the main part, giving thanks. 
Hi, this is Hope from Alston, Mass. Thanksgiving is going to look a lot different this year for everyone, for a holiday that's really all about gathering and being together and eating good food. When you can't gather and be together, all that's really left is good food. But I think it can be an opportunity to cook the things you're used to cooking so you can feel closer to the people who aren't around. Or maybe because all the other traditions are kind of out the window, it can be a chance to maybe try new things and see what works for next year when we can all be together again. Hello, dear people. It's Alice from Alice's Restaurant. Isn't this year a bit different? This year, our gravy boats have sunk, no family feast, no lumpy mashed potatoes, no greasy gravy, and no one asking you, and what do you do? And think of all those happy, happy turkeys. Meanwhile, we still have a zillion things to be grateful for. Most of all, we have each other. And that's really all we have. Do I sound like an old hippie? I'm 80 years old. Not in great health, but I'm still kicking. And still cooking. I'd like to thank everyone who called in to share their stories. That means listeners, chefs, authors, also friends. A complete collection of all the participants and holiday greetings can be found at our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and we, of course, wish you a very happy, safe Thanksgiving. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.